0: Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. I'm Dave Brown. It's Thursday, January the 26th, 2023. Coming up in the second hour of the show, Stephen Scott of Double Tap will explore some of the issues around new technology and whether or not they pose a true threat to the white cane. feels like we circle around this topic fairly often, whether it be balance and can something truly reprint. We'll uh, do that contrast with Stephen Scott And Don Dickinson is a preview of Maclean's Magazine with an article about Canada's gymnastics sexual abuse scandals. So a lot of uh, material to cover here over the course of the next hour on the show. But let's begin with the regional news update. Starting in British Columbia, the union representing firefighters in Vancouver is sounding the alarm over a lack of resources to address the city's growing demands for emergency services. The local chapter of the International Association of Firefighters says fire and rescue personnel responded to more than 65,000 calls last year, including 7,000 related to drug overdoses. The union says that represents an 18% increase in demand since 2018, and the city needs 55 more firefighters, to meet the need. The union also points to a, a serious lack of resources in vulnerable neighborhoods. Over to the prairies. The Manitoba government is set to announce a second round of financial aid to address the rising cost of living. Steve Lambert has more. Last fall, the government issued checks to low-income seniors and some families. A new round of checks to be revealed today will cover more people, the Premier's office says, while still having an income threshold. The program will cost $200 million, more than double the last round. The Premier has said this will help people fight inflation. The opposition New Democrats accuse the government of buying votes. Steve Lambert, the Canadian Press, Winnipeg. When I grew up, I want to have a voice like Steve. And finally, in Ontario, Toronto police say a 16-year-old boy is in hospital with non-life-threatening injuries after being stabbed on a public transit bus in the city's West End. Canadian press reporter Brenda Molina Navidad has more.
1: Officers found a teenage victim with stab wounds to his torso and legs at Old Mill Subway Station and he was taken to a trauma centre. This is the fourth case of transit violence in the city in five days. In recent days, a woman in her 20s was stabbed on a streetcar. Two uniformed Toronto Transit Commission employees were assaulted on their way to work and a TTC driver was shot with a BB gun.
0: Police are looking for a suspect who is believed to be in his 20s that's your look at the regional news brock richardson is here for a sports chat All right, Mr. Richardson, we got some interesting stuff to talk about here. And over the course of the last few days, you've been giving Parasport updates on both the Nordic World Championships taking place in Sweden, as well as a wheelchair basketball event in Toronto. And a little bit later here, I'm going to uh, bring up something that's going on down under for the Australian Open. But where do you want to start this conversation?
2: Start with the uh, Paranordic World Championships. We've added another... four medals to our total, which is now uh, around the double-digit mark. My uh, math skills were never great, and I have to literally count every day when we get new ones, but I'm pretty sure we're close to the double-digit mark. And uh, I want to highlight Brittany Hudduck, who we've been talking about a little bit all week. She added another medal. She is now three races and three medals. She added a bronze medal to her collection. And Dave, honestly, two things here. One, I want to interview Brittany on the neutral zone, so that will be hopefully coming down the line. Two, if I could win one medal at a world championships, I would be thrilled, let alone three. So she is having an outstanding event, and to be that focused for um, three different disciplines, you know, that that that's pretty good, so congratulations to her and ha- having a successful event um, in that regard because it's hard to get one medal let alone three dave
0: brock along those lines from your experience as an elite paralympian what does momentum mean sometimes commentators in the media like to talk about momentum and then there's the old cliche oh momentum is only as good as tomorrow's starting pitcher or uh, the bounce <laughs> off the off the rim but from your perspective as someone who's competed at a high level what does momentum mean if you absolutely smoke something somebody in the first game of a bocce tournament, that's gotta to give you a little jolt through the rest of the tournament.
2: It does. Um I had an event where momentum sort of worked the other way. We were playing an event, it was at the Paris Sport Games uh, many, many moons ago. And we were playing an event where you if you lost three, you were you were finished. But until you lost three games, you'd get to continue. So I had Lost the first two, and then I couldn't lose the third one, and everyone's talking, oh, you won't be able to win because you've already lost two. It'll be hard to win three in a row and so I used that as uh inspiration and and once I won the first game, I thought, you know what, screw these people basically i'm gonna i'm gonna i'm gonna I'm gonna, I'm gonna win my three games, and so I got to the third game, and I thought, you know what we're down both of us have two losses. Whoever wins is uh, gonna gonna win the win the gold medal, and whoever loses will have their third loss. And I am happy to admit that I won the game. And so momentum can work, but it can work sort of backwards too. In that if you have more chances, you can build momentum. But it is easier when you start a tournament and you say, I- "I'm gonna you know get off and win this game really really nicely," and that's easier than going the other way and working backwards.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, Brock, the other event that you've had on your radar here this week is a wheelchair basketball event taking place in Toronto. Any update you want to share there?
2: Yes. So uh, Canada beat Japan uh 80-43 in the first game. There is a game right now being played at uh, 10 a.m. Eastern time. If you're watching one of the repeats, and I'm saying this at this point, <laughs> you can go to the Facebook page and still get the game, but uh, yeah, yeah, if you're
0: watching this in the future, hello from the past.
2: Yes, exactly. Right. And so this is a good opportunity. I will be going down to the game uh on Friday with my attendant Catherine. Oh and so so we'll be we'll be taking in that and hopefully seeing it. They do have the stream. I will say the first game did not have a commentary, so it was just a camera as we talked about earlier in the week. Uh you know filming it there was no commentary but it is still a great action to take part in and you kind of have to keep track of your own score because again they don't have a little ticker that puts the score up oh, at gosh. the end of the game they <laughs> will but yeah it, it's not a uh fancy broadcast but it's it's something so
0: yeah Yeah, excellent. So Brock, the other para-sports element that we wanted to get to today, it's something we've been circling around almost for a week now because you and I had the long conversation last week about potentially having the Paralympics and the Olympics held at the same time. Yesterday, journalist John Lepke joined us from Saskatchewan and we discussed how uh, para-sport was going to be played alongside other sports at the Canada Winter Games in PEI next month. And then I posed the question to him, about the importance of staging para-sport alongside their counterparts. Uh, in I'm using the word mainstream sport because I, I don't like the word able-bodied sport. Not even that I really like the word mainstream sport, but I'm still struggling to figure with any kind of terminology it's there. It's tough. It's tough. But yeah. but down under during the Australian Tennis Open, the Australian Open Tennis Tournament, which uh, you and I have not talked too, too much about, largely because a lot of the big names already out of the tournament. <laughs> so <laughs> if it ain't sexy and it's happening at one in the morning, <laughs> I I'm uh, not too interested. Um, but <laughs> but Brock, there's something that they're doing as part of this Open, which is featuring blind tennis, at least as an exhibition, a couple times throughout the tournament on a couple of the side courts uh, in, front of, in front of the crowds, which is an interesting idea. And once again, putting different forms of para-sport alongside their counterpart. What's your reaction to the Australian Open making a point of doing this to be featuring blind
2: tennis? My reaction is well done and it's something that you know we need to look at and say this is not something we do as a as a sort of token as a look what we did this time and you know we need to continue to feature these sports i remember i did a uh remote for ami audio uh in my early start with them and we went to uh one of the grand slam events. And they did the same thing with um, the visually impaired curling. And I I really thought that that was a good, uh, good thing. And I mean, there's lots of eyeballs on the Australian open. It's one of the major events of the year, even though it's really hard to watch because you got to either stay up really late or get up really early, but it's, it's a really good start. And I think other uh, tennis tournaments should be taking on to this and featuring it because You know, just because it's at the Australian Open doesn't mean the people in New York uh, are necessarily watching it all the time. And so it's, I think this is something that we need to continue, but we're off to a good start with featuring um, para and mainstream sports in one event, and I love it. Brock, what do you think that could mean
0: for other forms of para-sports? So oftentimes you go to a Leafs game or a Habs game or a Canucks game, and during the during the break they have, like, the Timbits hockey out there. They have, like, the mm-hmm. little kids. Would it be patronizing to have blind hockey or sledge hockey or, or para-ice
2: hockey featured in those spots? Or or, or is, should we leave that to the kids? My, my view is why not? Like, you, because the point is is that you're trying to display, you know, the sports still and keep people entertained i understand it's it's mainly meant for the children but i think it's all about the education process and i think if you educate and say we're going to do this as a feature uh, it was done once at when the brampton battalion uh played uh a game and they had the cruiser sports uh which is a mississauga uh, charity for uh uh the sports i was gonna para sports that's the word that was coming to mind and it's um it was really good people there was a lot of people interested in and it also just gave them eyes open and said this does exist and i think if it's out there then people understand hey this is here and we can we can participate and you never know who's in the crowd and who might be able to partake in para sports so it's always a good thing.
0: Brock, we don't give basketball enough love in these segments. Hopefully, as the football season really comes to an end, you and I can dive a little bit deeper into what's going on into the NBA world. The NBA trade deadline, just a couple of weeks away here, and the Toronto Raptors, despite being on a two-game winning streak, despite getting a really nice win last night against Sacramento Kings, the Pacific leading Sacramento Kings, I know it sounds weird coming out of my mouth that feels like we're in 2002 all over again, but despite that two-game winning streak, the Raptors still find themselves out of the playoff race. Certainly, out they're in the play-in race, but they're not quite at the play-off race, uh, so to speak. I know it sounds like I'm kind of uh, splitting hairs there, but it matters. Uh, Brock, as, as we approach the NBA trade deadline, if you're the Toronto Raptors, what are you considering as an option for the possibility of trading guard Fred, Fred Van Vliet?
2: I... I personally think the only untouchable on this team is Scotty Barnes. I, you know, we have to at some point look at bringing in younger pieces. We have to at some point look at uh, getting draft picks and and building our stock. Because what we don't want to see, Dave, is another run where we don't have a championship for uh, 20 plus years. Masai Ujiri is not going to stand for that. And so even though we all love to love Fred Van Vliet, I think we have to look at this and say, what is Fred Van Vliet worth to us now when he's still under contract versus when he gets to the end of the season and he's in free agency. Oftentimes what you see is people hold on to players and then they get a bag of mini basketballs that they can throw, you know, during the halftime and that that's all it is. And I, I think we as an organization as the Toronto Raptors need to get more for our pieces that are there. So if the offer was there, I I would strongly consider it, but to me it's all about the young pieces that would have to come back for Toronto. What do you think the minimum
0: get for Fred Van Vliet would be? Minimum first round pick?
2: Oh yeah, minimum. Uh I I would even I would even say that that I would throw away uh, I would say if you're not gonna give me a first round pick, I want um some some young somebody young, and I don't have somebody off the top of my head that I can think of at the moment. But I, I want something that I can groom and build alongside Scotty Barnes. Like I said, Scotty Barnes to me is the only piece of this that isn't t- touchable, and I think you would want another piece that you could also build into that and build around Scotty Barnes and but at the same time Dave if the offers not there uh, for Fred I think that you that you don't want to you know kick him to the curb right away but you do want to you know do something uh and get something before he just walks away at the end of the end of the year cuz I don't think he's resigning with the Raptors that's just my gut my theory
0: on any team who's not in playoff contention should is trade your pieces. Um, and if you can get more for them by trading them early, you should absolutely do that. The Toronto Raptors find themselves at a very interesting inflection point where they are not the team that won a championship in 2019. And they're probably not as good as the team that went to the first round and got knocked out by the Philadelphia 76ers last year. And maybe they're not as bad as that team that spent a year in Orlando during the pandemic. They're really in that mushy middle right now that even though with a couple more wins they could get themselves into the play-in tournament, they're going to get destroyed by, by Milwaukee or Philadelphia or by Boston in the first round. Go get yourself some assets. Go get yourself some salary cap space and go into a mini-rebuild. You've, As you put it, Brock, there's already a good player there in Scotty Barnes. OG Ananobi is a really good young player. He's only 23 years old. Same thing with Gary Trent. There are some little pieces they have in place that can be the foundation of the next thing you build, but you need the assets to go do that building. So to me, if Fred Van Vliet has not signed, And he's been eligible to sign since last summer. You have to make hard choices and say, I'm sorry that you're a fan favorite. We appreciate that as an undrafted player, you've come a long way with this organization. But now it's time for us to go our separate ways. And hey, if you want to come back in the summer, you're welcome to sign with us as well. Uh, Brock, uh, we will talk more about the NBA. We'll talk more about the NBA trade deadline as we are just a couple of weeks away from that date. We'll play a little bit of matchmaker. But for now, we say goodbye to you, sir. Have a great day. You as well. That is Brock Richardson. He is the host of The Neutral Zone on AMI-audio. He's at the AMI Sports Desk. And Alex Smythe is at the AMI Weather Desk.
3: AMI National Weather Report from Environment Canada. We're going to start off in Cornerbrook, Newfoundland, where it is mainly cloudy with snow or possible rain expected this afternoon. There's up to 2 centimeters of snow set to fall. There's also wind gusts up to 50 kilometers per hour. The highest four degrees with a wind chill of minus four, but there is a wind warning in effect with up to 130 kilometer winds expected tonight. So be sure to be very careful if you're out and about tonight in Cornerbrook. The Charlottetown PEI, it's a mix of snow, ice and rain this morning. There's up to four centimeters of snow and 15 millimeters of rain. Wind gusts up to 100 kilometers per hour as well the high is eight degrees and a wind warning is in place. In St. John, New Brunswick, there's snow changing to heavy rain. There's five centimeters of snow and 40 millimeters of rain. Wind gusts also up to fifty uh, to 80 kilometers per hour, excuse me. The high is nine degrees and there is that rain warning in effect. To Quebec City, Quebec, there's heavy snow today with up to 10 centimeters falling. There's also wind gusts up to 70 kilometers per hour. The high is minus three. The wind chill makes it minus nineteen, and a winter storm warning is in effect for the area. Here in Toronto, Ontario, there is light snow in the morning, and then there is a chance for more later on in the day. There's wind gusts up to 50 kilometers per hour. The high is minus one, feeling like minus 10. To Sault Saint Marie, Ontario, it's mainly cloudy with the chance of snow today. The high is minus seven, feeling like minus 15. In Brandon, Manitoba, it's cloudy with up to five centimeters of snow falling, wind gusts up to 50 kilometers per hour. The high is minus four. The wind chill makes it feel though, like minus 25. In Regina, Saskatchewan, there's snow and rain with up to five centimeters falling, wind gusts up to 80 kilometers per hour. The high is one degree, but with the wind chill, it makes it feel like minus 16. To Lethbridge, Alberta, it's a mix of sun and clouds, wind gusts uh, gusts up to 80 kilometers per hour, but the high is seven degrees. To Red Deer, Alberta, it's very similar. It's a mix of sun and clouds, and wind gusts also up to 80 kilometers per hour in Red Deer, and a high of five degrees. Up to Whitehorse, Yukon, there is a mix of sun and clouds, and the high it's five degrees. To Kelowna, BC, it's cloudy with a chance of snow or rain today. The high is four degrees. And finally in Vancouver, BC, there's rain in the forecast today and the high will be five degrees. That's our AMI National Weather Report from Environment Canada.
0: Thank you very much, Alex. Coming up next, Stephen Scott and I will discuss some of the issues around technology potentially replacing things like white canes or technology replacing things like Braille. So Stephen Scott and I will discuss uh, what's going on in the world of tech vis-à-vis orientation and mobility. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Technology is a good thing. We like technology, even if I'm sometimes a little bit of a Luddite or a late adapter on some of it. So oftentimes, technology is framed as a way of solving inaccessibility and being a tool when it comes to orientation and mobility. But can new tech really replace traditional O&M methods like the white cane or something like a guide dog well let's talk to Stephen scott about this issue steven is the host of double tap which you can find daily at noon eastern on ami audio hey good morning Stephen. good morning dave how are you i'm well steven what got you thinking about this topic
4: well you know it's been interesting on the show in the past couple of weeks we've been talking a lot about guide dogs and canes and it all started because i had seen someone on a news programme, going through the experience of having a guide dog and then not having a guide dog for a period of time while they awaited a new one, using the cane and finding it rather challenging. And they were raising the question, what other technology can I use? Surely there's technology that can replace my guide dog when it's feeling sick or whatever else. And it just got me a bit irritated, to be honest, because I thought, what's wrong with a white cane? What's wrong with a guide dog? Why do we always have to have technology solve a problem. I actually don't believe there is a problem to be solved. And I think sometimes this technology that comes along, we've seen many, many types, and actually at the Consumer Electronics Show this year, it seemed to be full of technology that avoided us bumping into things or helped us to avoid bumping into things. And that's okay. But I sometimes feel it's a problem trying to be solved that isn't really a problem. Stephen, how much of this is about
0: people in the tech sphere perhaps misunderstanding a lot of the fundamentals that go into orientation and mobility training?
4: I think there's a lot of that. I also think there's a lot of where, you know, and often it's the case where people are trying to do good. And I think by doing good, it's not that they're causing harm, they're not, but what they are doing is they're essentially putting a tax on what is... A product which is fine. You know, a white cane, for example, doesn't need to be replaced with something that's smart. There's a, a cane out at the moment called the WeWalk Smart Cane, which is an invention where the idea of the WeWalk Smart Cane is that it, it essentially gives you additional information to what the cane gives you. And for those that don't know, a white cane already gives you, even though it's a fairly dumb stick, Uh, You know, that's all it really does is just drag (laughs) itself along the ground, or you can tap it if you choose, Uh, depending on your style. You know, essentially, it's giving you a lot of information off the ground already. It is giving you information about the type of road you're on. So, for example, let's say I'm walking down the street, and uh, suddenly there's a grassy, you know, part of the the road, maybe to my left, I don't see um, well, my cane will pick up on that. It will pick up on the different type of ground that I'm traveling on, and that will help me navigate. I can use it to shoreline, to move around my my environment and learn where things are. I can use it to find obstacles. The problem is, if you start adding on to that a whole host of vibrations and feedback for all kinds of different things, and in the WeWalks case, it's about not actually what's on the ground, but actually what's ahead of you at head height. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, for example, a branch you may walk into or something else or whatever it might be that's that's essentially at head height. That is where you have the problem. And that can be a problem for a lot of us. But if you have that being fed through the same handle that you're holding to get information from the ground, actually, I think that disables you from knowing where you are, you know, information you should be getting. Mm -hmm. I think that can be problematic. So again, it's a good idea I just don't know if the implementation's right. And again, it's trying to solve something that that isn't really a problem
0: sometimes the terminology and the way these things get presented bother me. Like There's this marketing word which is easily, easily. This will help you easily navigate the world. And I'm like, that's a marketing term. That's not a term we should be using in the way we cover this journalistically, and yet we fall into this trap. I'm not saying you or Sean or myself specifically, but there are plenty of days where I'm literally doing those edits on the fly, saying, no, 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 easily is not the word we're looking for here. (laughs) Maybe more easily might be be a way to frame that. But I'm, I'm I'm always a little bit concerned in the way these things are sort of tagged as solutions rather than necessarily an assistant, right? It's in the word assistive devices that that so oftentimes people think of these things as the singular silver, silver bullet solution rather than a piece of the puzzle.
4: You know, it's a bit like when you, uh, you know, you hear on the news, there's been a poll and that poll is telling you, you know, oh, well, you know, we asked a thousand people and they said X, Y, or Z. And you think, hang on, no one ever asked my opinion on this. (laughs) And no one ever asks my opinion on anything. Who's answering these polls? Well, except me,
0: except me every Thursday.
4: All oh, right, right. Well, yeah, yeah, of course, your poll, fair enough. That is a different thing. And in fairness, you have asked me the question. So, okay, I'll give you that one. But, you know, what was interesting to me is that nobody ever seems to approach a blind person and say, is this something you need? And I feel there are a lot of occasions where there are products that come to market, and a blind person has never been involved, or indeed a disabled person has ever been involved in its creation. And, you know, it's almost like we've created this, what do you think now? Oh, and by the way, it's a thousand dollars, and I just—I'm not for that. I'm really not. I, no, I'm not against. And you know me—I love my tech. I love my gadgets. I love my toys. And anything that can make life better, I'm all for. And if there's something that can come out that can do the job that can help me better than a white cane or a guide dog can, I'll be interested. But I must admit. In all my years of covering these these types of products, I've never seen it. And I think that's why guide dog schools are still essentially oversubscribed. And, you know, people who use the white cane are, to the most part, at least, quite happy with it.
0: There's also a matter of degree here as well, right? That some things can be rolled out that are super useful for someone like me, who is legally blind, but not totally blind. For me, mainstream GPS technology generally gets the job done, not always, but generally gets the job done. What I worry about here is when people start talking about, oh, we're integrating this GPS technology with this haptic feedback vest that you're going to wear, and this is going to be great for anybody who has low vision. And the one thing I worry about here, Stephen, is that I'm not so much concerned that sort of organizations that deal with disability and blindness will be influenced by this. I'm always worried that government and business will say, well, how much work do we need to put in breaking down inaccessibility if this can simply be solved with technology? And again, I'm using that word solved and I want to put big quotation marks on that.
4: You know, you mentioned before the break about Braille and and that's a great way to to bring that up into this because of course, Braille is something which, you know, we've discussed a lot on the show. I made a great email the other day, someone asking the question, how long is Braille sustainable? you know, considering the cost, considering the production of it and how it works and the implementation of it. You know, for example, if you said to someone, everything in your building has to have Braille in it, is that really sustainable? Um, And, you know, why can't we just use audio? Why can't we just use other kinds of, you know, ways and ma- methods, maybe a QR code, lens, whatever it might be that we use to be able to provide information. And that's the challenge oftentimes. It, for me, what my biggest issue is, is that sometimes technology is seen as the quick way to solve a problem for a disabled person. And therefore, if it's implemented, like you're saying, if it's implemented in, then really the, the the options that can actually make the real difference to a blind person, like for example learning braille, as one example, uh, which you know is massively important to people's literacy and being able to actually read. If that's discounted and it's just considered to be well, actually instead you know audio will do you fine, that's dangerous. And we're seeing that in education to some degree, and that's a problem. We don't want that. We want options. We want to have choice. And you know sometimes it's expensive, sometimes it isn't. Um, and, and when it comes to Braille, unfortunately, there's no way around it. It will always be a niche product. It will always be something that unless, as I've said before with you, you know, unless someone can come up with a, t- a tablet that you know, can raise dots by itself and <laughs> does it you know, almost in a haptic way, then I don't think that will ever happen. And I don't think that would ever happen. Who knows? But I don't think so. It's not certain in the cards have been lots of projects. It's never come to fruition. So I just think, it, it, it's, I guess for me this is a little opportunity to kind of just say to people, let's just calm down a little bit on the tech front. It's not the solution to everything in our world, but yes, Mm. it is very important. Because one thing that is actually the most important of all, and I learned this myself recently, when the battery dies in your smartphone and you haven't got good orientation and mobility skills and you've got your white cane, you still got to find your way home. And if you can't do that, that's a problem. If you're reliant Mm. on too much tech, that can become hazardous to your health and indeed your ability to get home
0: foundational understanding of orientation and mobility whether that be the independence that o m gives you or the independence that being able to read independently that braille gives you these are critical critical pieces of the puzzle and those are the foundational pieces before we start getting the doodabs and the fancy things steven <laughs> i love that you wandered a little bit off the pathway with us today and that is something you like to do on double tap what's coming up on the show this afternoon
4: Well, we are doing something a bit different today. Uh, We don't normally talk about gaming, but we're going to be discussing the Game Conference Awards that just took place yesterday. Uh, We're going to have the host, Steve Saylor. You'll know Steve, of course. I know Steve, yeah. uh, The blind gamer. Uh, He's going to be on the show, Sightless Combat, that is not his real name, you might be surprised to learn. Uh, He is uh, joining us to talk all about uh, his uh, feelings about the awards themselves, it all took place virtually last night, and uh, even one of the winners, Grant Stoner, who won the Best Journalist and the Best Advocate award as well, he will be joining me on the show today. It is a packed one and it's all about gaming, which is a little bit different for us, but it's uh, it's such an exciting area at the moment and, and such a key area of innovation.
0: Ah, the joys
4: of joysticks with Stephen Scott on Double Tap. Stephen, thank you for this. <laughs> thank you, Dave. Have a great day.
0: That is Stephen Scott, one of the hosts of Double Tap, which you can find daily at noon Eastern on AMI Audio. You can download the podcast on your favorite podcasting platform, and you can find Stephen in Glasgow, Scotland. You can find the team on Twitter at Double Tap On Air. Another great AMI Audio program to keep in mind. The Pulse, this Thursday, today, one thirty p.m. Eastern Time on AMI-audio. juita Gupta will discuss As I Live and Breathe, a book of short stories on the experiences of youth with disabilities. That's The Pulse, Thursday, one thirty p.m. Eastern Time on AMI-audio, available on your favorite podcasting platform and on YouTube. Coming up next, there was a uh, snowstorm in Toronto yesterday. I don't want to put the quotes up again on that one. There was a snowstorm in Toronto yesterday, and uh, got Alex Smythe thinking about strategies for shoveling snow. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI. I've officially been shouted at by uh, Southern Ontarians around the building that there was indeed a snowstorm in Southern Ontario yesterday. Apparently, the snow was rather heavy, and that got Alex Smythe thinking about a roundtable conversation around shoveling. So, before we bring in Rumya or Nizreen, Alex, how was your day of cleaning the driveway?
3: Yeah, Dave, I, I took the day off. I was thinking, oh, I'm going to just have fun. I can do whatever I want. You know what I ended up doing? Shoveling the snow most of the day. That was that was my day off. So in hindsight, I did not use it to the fullest of, of my capabilities. But, you know, the problem with the snowfall yesterday was it was so wet and heavy. So it made shoveling just so tough, more so than when you get that light, fluffy snow. Yeah, you can get, like... 10 centimeters, but it doesn't weigh a lot. This was heavy. It was perfect to make snowballs and snow forts, but when you got to shovel it, it was a real pain. So I wanted to open this up to the, the round table and, and find out like, what's your strategy when it comes to shoveling snow? Do you go out you know, every couple hours or so you're dealing with it constantly, but it's you're dealing with lots of it. Do you wait till the snow's all done to, and then deal with it in one long shovel? Do you not even shovel at all? Do you leave it and let it melt? Do you use salt? So Nizarine, we'll start with you. Like what's your strategy when it comes to snow?
5: So we have the, quite a few people in our house. So as the only person with um, arthritis, I try to avoid the, these things and I think it's fair. I, I do other things.
3: Good
0: strategy. So-
5: Yeah. Um, so when my dad's like, Oh, you want to help your sister? I'm like, I'd rather not I have other things to do. Um, because five minutes outside, I get so stiff, and it's so painful. So, um, but we're the type of people like our neighborhood, we take turns. So okay, we shovel the house next to us and the house on the right side as well, and even in front of us, and they do the same sometimes if they wake up earlier. So we take turns around the neighborhood and our our sidewalks are very important because there's a lot of kids in the neighborhood too, so we take that into consideration.
0: Ramya, you're an apartment dweller like me, um, but I've been to your old house in Scarborough. I'm assuming that when the snow falls, like the responsibility falls upon your very muscular brother.
1: Hell's yeah, that's what I was. I'm so glad that you are uh, attested to this as well. My brothers are way more muscular than I am, so even if I'm visiting my mom's place, uh, I don't really do any snow shoveling. But from a strictly observer point of view, I think it's strategic. <laughs> okay, it's strategic to shovel right away. My mom often calls me actually when we have snowstorms like this and talks about how the neighbors are doing such a good job shoveling their snow. Why can't my brothers do the same with their driveway? Um, you know, things like that just air out the laundry dirty laundry here but anyway it's true like shoveling right away makes a big difference she says that um when people do that she can tell that there's a, a big difference in the next day's snow heaping process so take some notes brother
0: my uh my natural Position on almost anything in the world is procrastination. I wait until something's a crisis before I do something. And when I did live in a house, uh, it's been over a decade since I've had a driveway, uh, I was typically responsible for the shoveling because I was a big muscle man. But there were always concerns expressed by my father that I would wait way too long and the snow would get way too icy or way too caked up before I would do anything. But of course, again, as the strapping young brawny man that I was, I was able to break that ice up using uh, Alex, you had a question about about tools. I would always have a wide plastic shovel for general plowing, but I also had a short stubby metal one, like steel, that I would use to break ice as my tools of choice. Uh, Alex, it sounds like maybe uh, one of the kindnesses of your parents uh, letting you live with them these days is
3: that you are responsible for the snow what are your tools of choice Uh, yeah you're you're right Dave that's uh, the responsibility that falls on to me and I don't mind it Uh, you know I usually have to fight my dad because he'll just sneak out and do it and you know he's (laughs) he's close to 70 and it's like stop you're gonna give yourself a heart attack these stubborn
0: these stubborn boomers it's like no no let me uh, do it
3: exactly so uh typically i i'm i agree with you dave in terms of tools like i always use that like push shovel especially yesterday you know it's great it's wet you can move it just it builds up a lot so you have to give it more force and uh to to get it across the driveway but i'll start with that and then once the plows come through and they leave all those ice chunks yeah you got to bust out that metal sharp uh, uh shovel and just break it down and give it bit by bit but It's key to do it as quickly as you can and as often as you can, because if you're dealing with one centimeter, it's far easier to push and and clear than if you're dealing with 5, 10, 15.
0: Yeah, but if you really want that workout, you got to let it build up a little bit so you can really contract your muscles and keep it going. Uh, While we're talking about snow shoveling and snow removal, on my walk-in this morning, I had my usual pet peeve after a snowstorm, which is people uh, clearing their driveways but leaving huge mounds of snow in the middle of the sidewalk. Uh, Alex, how do you feel about huge mounds of snow in the middle of the sidewalk? And when you do shovel, are you someone who takes that extra care to make sure the sidewalk is clear?
3: Oh, yeah, hands down, the sidewalks always have to be clear, like I do it kind of in order, I'll do the top of my driveway, the first section where the cars are, then I'll do the sidewalks next. And then I'll do like kind of the base because it's our, our driveways broken up by the sidewalk. So I kind of divide it mentally in my mind that way. Um, but I always do it to like the the property line of our, our neighbors and, and whatnot, because it always has to be clear because I there were so many times when I would be walking uh, to catch a bus or something. And you would always cross those houses that just did not do their sidewalks. Yeah. And it was fine, you know, when the first couple of days when it snowed, but when it turns to ice and it actually turns dangerous Mm -hmm. when it freezes and especially when it's frozen in footsteps and stuff, if you fall, you're going to hurt yourself very badly. And and we have a school right across the street. So, you know, we want to make sure the kids are not going to run into that. But there's also, you know, there's a liability issue. If you leave the sidewalks full, someone slips and fall. Well, you you may be getting a, a call for a a legal dispute at mm-hmm,
0: that point. Mm-hmm, even though my lawyer continues to be on parental leave. And uh, Nazarene, where do you feel how? Where do you feel about the pet peeve of people leaving big banks on their sidewalks after they've cleared their driveways?
5: It is a big pet peeve of mine because I was uh, walking my nephew to school today, and Aww. it was full. He's so cute, by the way. Um, it was full of snow. I mean, there's so many. Uh, parts of the sidewalk that wasn't shoveled, but their other side of the sidewalk was shoveled. So I'm like, I don't understand. You shoveled your driveway and that second half of your driveway, but in between that sidewalk, it's really not that hard. And I just mentioned that I don't shuffle because of my uh, arthritis, but I'll shovel it for you at this <laughs> yeah.
0: point. That's when Nazreen will step We're up like and say- We're
5: like trampling here.
0: <laughs> That's how uh, Nazreen's a superhero in her own special way, the snow remover. Uh, Rumia, <laughs> how about you on the pet peeve that is uh, those kinds of blockades on the sidewalk? I assume especially when you're walking your doggo on a snowy day.
1: Oh, yeah. He loves it. He doesn't really care about snowbanks. He actually flops right in. Yeah, and yeah, just, but then
0: drags you right totally,
1: through it. Absolutely. And that's the thing. Like yesterday, it was coming down. It was really coming down, especially on my commute home. And the sidewalk, like the couple hundred meters walk that I had to do, I really had to shovel using my cane to find out exactly where the sidewalk was because it was absolutely buried. And I wondered, you know, I was doing a little bit of a PSA to myself. Nobody else was hearing me. I was saying, you know, if everybody just shoveled their own sidewalk in front of their own house we wouldn't have to deal with this but uh most certainly super annoying as you're trying to commute through all the different elements of winter to begin with and snow coming down and all of it and on top of that people not shoveling the sidewalk
0: i'm uh, mm-hmm. glad i'm not the only person who gives myself psa's and speeches as i'm oh, walking so down much. the street there's a lot of internal conversation going mm-hmm. here uh alex great subject nazreen thank you for your input ramya you don't get to go away just yet because you are the co-host of Kelly and Ramya, which comes our way at 2 p.m. Eastern time on AMI-TV and AMI-audio. What's on the show today?
1: We're talking about the uh, Apple Fitness Plus app, right? It's Ooh. gotten some improvements, some additions of services like the mental health aspect. So we're going to talk more about that with Michael Fair on our uh, tech and entertainment feature. And we're talking about what's new in food this week because McDonald's and Doritos have some new ideas hitting oh. the shelves soon. I know. I'm especially excited about the Doritos, but you might be excited about the McDonald's. I don't know. Mary Mammalidi is going to tell us more about this. And we have our roundtable conversation. Today's guest is host of the Globe and Mail show, Corinne Van Dusen.
0: All right. I am uh, stunned, stunned that Mary Mammalidi would debase herself by uh, talking about such junk as Doritos and McDonald's, but I'm delighted Lies. that she is. We're
1: so excited.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Ramya, have a great show. We'll talk to you later. Thanks, Dave. That's Ramya Amuth the co-host of Kelly and Company. Coming, Oh, I got it wrong. $2 fine. Kelly and Ramya coming your way 2 p.m. Eastern time on AMI-audio. Coming up next, Don Dickinson previews McLean's magazine with an article about Canada's gymnastics sexual abuse scandal. This is now with Dave Brown on AMI. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI. Former gymnastics athletes are accusing coaches of abuse. How did gymnastics become yet another sport in crisis in Canada? Here to chat about this issue is Don Dickinson. Don is the content curator for McLean's Magazine on AMI Audio. Hey, good morning, Don.
6: Hi, Dave. I just want you to know that this boomer was definitely clearing snow this morning.
0: <laughs> well, uh, well, we're thankful for that, Don. But uh, really, really, where, where, where were the boys? Where where, 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 where were these legend six foot four, two hundred and forty pound boys in your life uh, who should have been cleaning that snow for you? They're working. They're uh, typical. Typical. Typical Gen Gen Zers and Millennials always always going to work. Uh, Don, yeah. let's jump into this first story. Uh, the first article is titled "The Harder They Fall" and written by Lauren McKeon. What is the important background on this feature story?
6: Well, uh, you know we've heard so much about abuse in sports. I mean, it's just uh, permeating everything. And of course, I guess it had to come to gymnastics sooner or later. So basically, this story was. Uh, that uh, 11, initially 11 women uh, came forward uh, who had trained at um, a gymnastics facility in Sarnia, Ontario, called Blue Water. Uh, the women alleged that Dave uh, Brubaker kissed and fondled them. Uh, some were as young as 12. Oh my gosh, 12. They say he screamed at them, repeatedly called them fat, forced them to perform dangerous moves that resulted in truly serious injuries. Uh, They say they were manhandled into painful positions, bodies stretched, yanked, and pushed beyond what they could endure at that young age. And the uh, Brubaker's... Uh, He and his wife have denied any wrongdoings. And of course, the story, which is the main feature, extensive uh, feature in uh, McLean's this week, is talking about this particular case.
0: How did this alleged abuse go on for so long?
6: Well, you know, this is often asked of of, of women uh, in in cases like this, and and, and young men is, uh, too, in 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 hockey and whatnot. And you have to remember that uh, these uh, individuals um, they're very young, Dave. Very very young. Uh, expectations are extremely high uh, on them. Uh, many kids begun, begin begin uh, you know around two, believe it or not, in gymnastics. That's a startling age, but yeah, yeah. <laughs> um. And they start training competitively, um, you know, very, very seriously. And a coach can garner a real um, almost uh, godlike reputation, you know. Um, They have such amazing influence. I don't know whether you played sports uh, when you were younger. I I imagine you did, your size. But being as tall as I was uh, when I was uh, young, uh, basically I went through that, you know, you know, when you're 13, you go through the growth spurt and then I came back to school and all the track coaches said, okay, you're never going home kid. So, I mean, you look up at those teachers and coaches and you just idolize them. Yeah, yeah. And a lot of times you just don't want to say anything negative. You don't want to reveal the mistreatment, you know? Um, and also I think a large part of it, Dave, is because it's so much part of your identity at that age. You know, you don't wanna jeopardize that.
0: Yeah, you you also may not necessarily understand precisely what abuse is that hasn't been communicated with you to understand what constitutes uh, irresponsible behavior from a coach. You mentioned the influence they'll have on a young life other than really your parents or your school teachers the coach is someone who really is one of the few adult authorities in your life oftentimes a little bit younger than your parents and your teachers so you may even feel uh, a, a certain kinship with them that's different in the bond but it also speaks to a real lack of institutional oversight that coaches are not being screened properly or being monitored properly through these processes so as we're talking about the scandal at Hockey Canada as we're talking about the scandal at Gymnastics Canada and several other sports what is the federal government demanding now from sports organizations for increased accountability?
6: Well... I guess everybody is pretty embarrassed about the whole situation, um, and they're just, they're demanding a lot more. Uh, federal government, the federal government isn't giving sports organizations any choice anymore. Uh, they have to change. In July, it suspended Jim Canada's annual two point nine million dollar funding. Uh, the freeze was to last until Jim Canada became a signatory to the Sports Integrity Office. Uh, if it signed on, Jim Canada, Jim uh, can sorry. Jim can uh, can no longer res- uh, er- no longer receive abuse reports, investigate its own cultures, or decide on disciplinary action. In other words, it cannot be autonomous as it has been in the past. Um, so the cases like this wouldn't wouldn't happen again. Sports organizations still have questions about how exactly the office will operate, how it will collect complaints, whether there will be a public database of sanctioned coaches, and what support will be offered to athletes uh, who complain of abuse. But it's like anything that we we've known in the past, Dave, you can't have these organizations disciplining their own, themselves mm-hmm. you know it mm-hmm. has to be it has to be uh, uh arm's length as they say
0: yeah or or certainly the organization has to demonstrate a history of offering accountability and in this case gym canada hasn't we also saw this with usa gymnastics and michigan state university in the u.s uh, very similar situation with a lot of their elite athletes coming forward with uh, with these kinds of allegations as well so when you can't you when you can't seemingly take care of yourself we're going to push accountability even above you and you're not going to have that kind of independence. Don, I've got to warn you, we've only got about two minutes on the clock on this one. So you might have to give me the the cliff notes on this next article called Bring Back Nuclear Power by David Novog. (laughs) So it explores the benefits of small modular reactors. So Don, instead of me sort of holding your hand through this, give me the cliff notes.
6: Okay, well, basically, everybody was pretty freaked out about nuclear in the past. I mean, we've always had those reservations. It's scary. And what do you do with all the waste? And, you know, China syndrome meltdown and all that terrible Mm -hmm, stuff, right? mm -hmm. So um, what they've come up with now is small modular reactors known as SMRs. Uh, And they function in much the same way as larger reactors, but at a fraction of the size. The science remains the same, however, uh, atom splitting process known known as nuclear fusion. And so... In traditional reactors can generate uh, 600 to uh, 1,000 megawatts of electric energy. These ones generate far less at 300, but still have enough power to uh, generate uh, power for 10,000 people for a wow. decade in, wow. in smaller communities and whatnot. So basically what it comes down to, Dave, is that the government has great, and I mean great because they're really investing in this, um, uh, um, they have um they want to do more with this so the canadian government is investing in 2020 it released canada's smr action plan which outlines recommendations for nuclear waste disposal regulation and partnership with indigenous communities dave and so they're putting a lot of money into this and hopefully um, they're going to be uh building um uh, more of these uh, facilities and we're going to have better energy Nuclear energy.
0: Nuclear energy. It's something that people have been talking about. It's not truly renewable per se, but again, part of the part of the bigger puzzle, right? If we want to get some wind reactors, some thermal, some small nuclear reactors, there's all kinds of ways to do this. And again, that that we hear stories like Three Mile Island and Chernobyl and even Fukushima in Japan after the earthquake and tsunami about a decade ago. You know, there there are still certainly concerns, but when you think about these things on a bit of a smaller scale, some of those concerns can certainly be alleviated. Don, I'm sorry. That I had to rush you through that last one, because we do like talking about energy on the show, so I promise I will do a better job managing the clock in the future.
6: <laughs> no problem, Dave.
0: <laughs> That's Don Dickinson, the content curator of McLean's Magazine, also apparently a great snow shoveler. You can find McLean's magazine Fridays at 5 p.m. Eastern Time on AMI Audio. That's all the time we have for the show today, but we'll be back again tomorrow morning at 9 a.m. Eastern Time. It's News Panel Friday. We're taking a closer look at a story out of Winnipeg where City Council is considering whether or not people should be able to swap statutory holidays in and out based on their cultural preferences. Interesting idea. Looking forward to getting Michelle and Julieta's take on that one. Until then, I'm Dave Brown reminding you to play safe, play fair. Lose your voice and don't forget to have some fun. Hey, Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv.